this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. So how's business? I hope it's great. Maybe it sucks. Maybe you feel like you're hitting your head against the wall. No matter what you do, you can't punch through. And every episode you listen to of Built to Sell Radio, you feel like you're the only person on earth who hasn't been acquired for some astronomical multiple. Listen, I empathize and I understand what you're going through. And my next guest does too. He built a company that over time, reached a plateau for four straight years. They couldn't punch to the next level. Their revenue was completely flat, and he was frustrated. But they made a big change to the business, a courageous change, and John Morrill described that change they made. Ultimately, a few years later, the company went on to be acquired for $50.6 million. The spoils go to those who stick it out the longest. And in this episode, I think you're going to hear some great lessons. Uh, Listen to how the acquisition came about, in particular, the conversation he had with a pre-existing partner that translated or transferred into an acquisition discussion. Listen for how important subscription revenue was to the acceleration of John's business after he reached that plateau. I also want you to hear how John describes his kind of crown jewels, that image bank of photography that he will describe for you in great detail. But he knew that was a differentiated value proposition, something that an acquirer couldn't easily replicate, which gave him negotiation leverage in his acquisition uh, with Elsevier. Here to tell you the entire story is John Moore. John Moore, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very much. Tell me a little bit about 3D for Medical. You guys had a key product called Essential Anatomy. What was the product? What did, what did you guys do? So actually, Essential Anatomy was the precursor to our main product, which was mm. Complete Anatomy. And Complete Anatomy, we had 1.2 registered users, 1.2 million registered users around the world, and we were in uh, 300 of the top universities by the time we sold. So what did it do? So it sounds a, a little bit corny, but really I think we could be credited for changing the way anatomy is being, has been learnt, um, not just by individuals, but in, across universities, not just medical students, but anybody that has to learn anatomy, whether it's 
um, chiropractitioners, whether it's medical students, whether it's physiotherapists, nurses. So if you look at the history over the last couple hundred years, people use books. And if you think of a book, they show, let's say, the skeleton, they show it in a flat from the front, or they show it from the side, or they show it from the back, the posterior view. So what we did was we created these 3D models in a 3D space that were almost photorealistic. And it allowed you to zoom in to any area that you wanted, look at it from any angle, remove the skin, cut structures. We had 20,000 model structures at the end by the time I left. And you were able to pull those structures out, see what's underneath them and see the relationship of those structures to other structures and form virtual operations and then be able to send those virtual operations out to your friends and colleagues or whatever. It's so cool because I saw your product for the first time about three months ago. I, I, I did my hip in running and I went to an osteopath here in Toronto. I think it was your product. You can tell me if it, it, it wasn't, but I'm pretty sure it was. I hope it was. Pull, yeah, exactly. He pulls out an iPad and he's trying to explain to me why my hip hurts. And he, and he, and he, and he punches, the, so human body comes up in three-dimensional, right? He punches the hip and then all of a sudden the skin is removed and now I'm looking at the muscles, right? And he's like, your muscle hurts. And then he hits the muscles and then beneath the muscles are the tendons. And then he's like, because right. this tendon's rubbing against and then he hits the tendons and then he gets down to the skeleton, the actual you know, hip yeah. socket. Yeah. And all of a sudden for me, it came to life in real time about mm -hmm. why my hip hurt. And in like in 30 seconds, he described it, which would have taken, I'm sure, uh, you know, hours to explain to a layperson. Exactly. And, and, you know, we had, um, we were very strong in that sort of innovation space and we were able to cut the 3D model. So you were able to manipulate and show where a fracture was on the hip. So, cool. so you know, you could really personalize it to, for, and it was very useful for doctors to be able to explain it to patients. As well. So what was your business model? Were you selling into physicians, to hospitals? Like, how did you, no, so how did you make that was, that, that was another issue for us. It was a problem too. It was, it was difficult for us to get into hospitals and, and getting doctors to use it. Um, and, and even professors, as I was talking about earlier, I mean, they were using books for 200 years and why change? They produce good doctors. Why would anybody ever change anything? So we, we had a difficulty trying to persuade people at the beginning um, to use it. But interestingly, um, because we were available in the app store, um, we would sell a lot of our applications to students. And the younger generation were much more open to using new technology. So that was our way of infiltrating. So eventually, it kind of came that, that, that mass that were using the application and it was easier than to go to university and say hey you know half your students are already using this so let's do a business to business deal but really our business consumer was the one that brought it up to the business to business wow that's fantastic so it's really students who are learning anatomy yeah and, and didn't want the the four inch thick textbook they wanted to just have an interactive app yeah if i explain that because you see the other thing, too, is that there's a whole new breed of people that have, that have come through, the millennials, but also the Z generation, that don't necessarily like to read anymore. They don't learn necessarily by reading. They're used to looking at YouTube. They're used to looking at something visual. So for them to be able to learn by doing and seeing something visual, it was just a natural way for them to get their exams or whatever. Gosh, this sounds fantastic. So, so what did you charge for the app? Like, how much did people pay? It depends on, on where, what you were doing. So 
we had different licensing at the end, you know, towards the end, we, we went for a, a subscription base uh, model, which was, you know, really took us to a completely different level. And I'll get into that in a couple of minutes if you want, but yeah, we please. had three different types of licenses. There was one for a student and there was one for an educator, which would be a professor. And then there was one as a medical professional. And to answer your question, it was $50, I believe, for the student license, and it was $100 for the medical professional and the educator. Got it. Got per it. Per year. Sorry, per year. Okay. And so you're getting people to download it. I mean, it sounds incredibly expensive to get this thing off the ground. You got to build the 3D models. You got to fund all of the acquisition costs. How did you finance this business? Organic growth. Really? Yeah, that's why it took us so long. It was one of those overnight successes that took us 14 years. Um, so really, we, uh, we, so we weren't always an app company or, or a medical app company. So we started off originally making um, medical images and selling and licensing medical images. But we did it with a difference. We used 3D medical, um, how would I put it, CAD uh, models. So it, it, let me just explain what that is for, you, for the listeners so they understand what that actually means. So if you, can, if you think about how you would make, let's say, a clay model of the heart. What you would do is you'd mold it and you'd, you'd get it right and you keep on looking at all the books, textbooks, and you get it right until you, you got it, you know, until it was medically accurate. It's pretty much the same thing that you would do with a, a CAD model. So you have this mesh and you pull it out and you pull out some parts, you turn it around, you put other parts in or whatever, and you get it into the shape that looks roughly like, let's say, a heart. Um, and then you manipulate that, then you get it absolutely perfect and medically accurate, and you get um, make sure they get doctors to approve it, and then you put on textures, and then you put it on lighting, and then you render it. So that's what we were doing, first of all, for the first six, seven years of our business. And we were selling into this beautiful business model, actually. We were distributing through Getty Images and Corbus and 51 other distributors. So, you know, you pick up, um, let's say, the front of National Geographic, and our images be there, or we were on the front of Time magazine. Not us, but one of our images is on the front of Time magazine twice, and Nash, um, American Scientific, and just, monthly, just loads and loads of books and, and advertising. And that, that went really well for us until about 2010, uh, 2009, 2010, the recession really started to hit, hit us then, and also the advent of cheap photography, and there was a lot of competition. So that business started to go down, and we, and we had to reinvent ourselves. But we had all these 3D models that were, we'd spent a fortune making medically accurate. And we said, well, what can we do now? So we decided to start making applications to teach students about parts of the body and how they work. I love it. I love it. What is that? You know, necessity is the mother of invention. That's it. That's exactly um, it. So who's the we? What's the ownership structure look like? <clears throat> so at the end, all the way up, it was, um, it was me. Um, until for the first couple of years, I was 100%, obviously. And then um, I, a, a really good partner, sales person in, in the States, Niall Johnston, um, he got uh, 10%. So it was a 90, 10%. And then in 2015, I mean, we're growing organically, but we decided we'd get a nice input of cash. I, I took some money off the table in 2015. Um, and we brought in um, an external investor, 
um, for and they put in 16 million. So, or they put in 10 million to the company and bought, bought out some of the shareholders for 6 million in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end, to answer your question, at the end, I had 54%. And the, the other shareholders, um, what was that process like about raising money for the business was growing, it sounds like, quite, quite nicely? Yeah. I mean, we had, we had, we had great technology, but we, we weren't really sure, even though we were making, we were profitable, um, um, we weren't really quite sure exactly where the market was. Um, I had thought at that stage that it was about making as many applications as possible. The more applications you actually have, then the more we could sell. Um, rather than actually looking at, it wasn't quantity, it was, it was quality. And uh, we had a, over 100 applications, by far the biggest medical app producer and, uh, on, on any of the app stores. In fact, we were at one stage, we got called by some of the uh, app store people and said, listen, you're just crowding up the whole medical thing. Uh, <laughs> medical category, can you combine them? And so we did. And, and really, we went to that essential anatomy, first of all, and then we went to complete anatomy, which was a platform. And we asked people to register so we could find out more about them and specifically start to make content for them. And that was really the difference. And that allowed us to go to a subscription base as well. Right. So tell us a bit, Dad, because I'm curious, because as I understand, in particular, the, the App Store and Apple's App Store, they're pretty cagey about letting app owners get data from the users. Yeah. So how did, how did you end up getting people to subscribe? Yeah, that's it's such a great question. <clears throat> First of all, it was always going to be difficulty trying to get people to subscribe because what you're replacing is a book. And if you think about a book, it's a once-off cost. And in fact, we were probably at least 10 books into one, but there's still just a once-off cost. So trying to get people to subscribe on a yearly basis was, was quite difficult. Um, but what we did was we looked at it and said, well, we're progressing greatly. We were adding all sorts of different features from you know, uh, uh, courses um, for being able to do your own dissections, dissections being able to share them across a a classroom or other t uh, uh, colleagues or your classmates, whatever. So we were adding in more and more stuff. So we kind of stopped and said, well, if you want all those things and these new tools for cutting and doing uh, dissections or whatever it may be, um, well, then you're going to have to subscribe. And we also started making courses, which was a game changer for us. So specifically, if you're a physiotherapist, we started making courses for physiotherapists. If you were an eye surgeon or you know, you're interested in the eye, we were doing courses on the eye um, from, from, or, or for an orthopedic surgeon, whatever it is, we were, we, were, we were making courses specifically for what you were studying, whether you were a nurse or whatever it may be. So that allowed people to, go to want to subscribe the next year. Also, what we found was that if people invested time into the product, they were much more likely to continue using it. So if you got them to participate in a dissection or you know, make their own content, put their own notes up there, then they, that was their place for learning. So they didn't want to just forget about, oh, my notes are up there. I have to keep on subscribing. So it was kind of connecting them in, if that makes sense. And so the billing was done through Apple? Is, is that how people would pay or did they... You get their yeah, credit so, card. <clears throat> well, well, first of all, we were on every um, platform. 
Um, so Android, Windows, uh, uh, Mac, um, uh, Apple, iOS. Um, so it, it depends. So what we what we what we had in the end was you could buy on any of those platforms, and that was another reason for to, to subscribe. Is that once you bought on any one of those platforms, or from our website, you could access it on any of the platforms mm. for a year. So it was cross-platform. That was another reason that if you want to use it on your phone, then you go home and use it on your on your Windows or your Mac or whatever it is, or in, in your school as well. You just log in, and that mm -hmm. was it. Everything was in the cloud. Got it. That's helpful. So, how how like, at what point did you think about selling the business? Was there a trigger that made you think, okay, now's the time? Like, kind of where were you at revenue wise, and what what made you want to sell? I, I think. I I was always trying to sell the business <laughs> before, before I even started the company trying to sell the business. But I, I, it was interesting because towards the, the end or, or before I, I actually sold out, the company was really, really starting to shoot and the, the, um, the SaaS-based model, which is a recurring revenue, was really kicking off um, our first year. Like all, everything was aligning. So, I really wasn't that pushed. I was at that position. And of course, that's put you in a great position. I really wasn't that pushed, or we weren't that pushed to sell. Like, we knew that this was really, really growing. We were in 300 of the top universities worldwide. And I don't mean just like normal universities. This is the, the Stanford's, the Cambridge's, you know, all the, not all, but most of the Ivy League colleges. These were, you know, and they were big deals and, and they were just getting bigger and we were growing. And the B to C, it's a business on the app stores was, was, was fantastic. That recurring revenue was coming in, which was just building up. So it wasn't pushed. It was just the offer came in and um, you never know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. Could we have stayed for another couple of years and got more money? Yeah, maybe. But when there's something on the table and it's right in front of you, I think it was time. Yeah. Yeah. Someone said the best time to sell is when someone's buying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and the other thing saying, saying goes that you don't sell a company, people buy it. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So I want to get into that. I want to first though, just go a little bit deeper on, on your comment. And you said it sort of tongue in cheek, but I got the sense there might've been a modicum of, of sincerity to it, which was that you've always been trying to sell the company. Mm -hmm. So you, you started the company to sell it, would that be fair to say? I, I, you know, I, I think there's always a ch the, yeah, I mean, I think my motivation, if I can be really honest, was probably up my ass, and excuse me if that, if you're, if, if that offends your, your, your listeners, but you know, it was, it was about money. I was uh, becoming, an, I wanted to be an entrepreneur to make money, and, and that was it. Now, did that change over the years? It probably did. Um, but, you know, I was always open for the right buyer. Always. What changed? How did it change? What, what caused it to change your motivation? I, I think when we saw what was really happening, so we used to have, uh, we had a very, very strong management team and we'd have these team meetings every month with, the, with, with everybody in the company and uh, they'd show what they're doing from the tech, from, um, you know, from the design, but also the customer service. And they would read out how it had changed people's lives, people that, you know, maybe had dyslexia or even in impoverished 
impoverished countries or whatever, where they were able to use our application and the difference that it made. And it wasn't just people that were studying, it was also people that were, had problems, um, physical problems themselves and were able to work out what was wrong with them using the application. So these were kind of heartfelt and we really felt that we were changing the world. And I think that became a bigger motivation than the money itself. And that's why I wasn't really that pushed to sell because I felt that we were, you know, we were eventually going to be taking that anyway. I mean, and, and also, um, I, I think uh, if you look, and I'm not saying anything against any confidentiality here, when you look at the big book publishers, um, you know, readership or people selling books has been difficult for them over the last couple of years. It's been going down. And of course, something like ours, which is more visual, was was really eating into that market. So, you know, it was only a matter of time. We felt that before somebody was going to come in and, and take us out. Yeah. I appreciate your candor on, on the comment around in the early days is probably, you know, you want to be an entrepreneur. Why? To make some money. Did you attempt to disguise that fact from your early employees that, hey, like, I'm looking to make some cash here. I'm the 100% shareholder. Um, did you disguise that? Was that um, was that something you held quite close to the vest? Uh, or because I guess in, in, in part, I, you know, as an employee, it, it may become demotivating to think that, oh, it's all about John and making money. Did, did yeah. you sort of hold that close to your vest? Or what was the, what was the way a, you handled that? That's a really, really good question. I, I suppose I did. I think it was um, on the back of my head. But I mean, you know, there was also... Um, in the early days, you're absolutely right, I did, but it, it, towards the end, no, it really wasn't. It was more about what we could do and how we were changing. So that was the motivation. But certainly, I, I don't think my motivation was in the right place when I started. Mm. Was there something that triggered you? Uh, you mentioned all these management meetings and seeing what was happening. Uh, was there a, a quiet conversation with a mentor or someone that sort of pulled you aside and said, "Hey, this you know this got to be more about more than than just you"? Like, do, do you recall anything that triggered you to to sort of think more broadly about what was possible? Yeah, I, I you know there was you know Niall, who was I, I was saying earlier was a ten percent holder. Um, we had our conversations, and the, the management team were very close, um, and and we kind of uh, you know we, we looked at the when the offer came in and. I felt that, yeah, sure, I'm going to get a lot of money, but I also made it clear that they would be getting some money as well. And uh, so when, I, when we did sell, we, there was a, a pool of money that was put in um, that anybody that was in the company for more than a year got a, big, a nice bonus. Fantastic. Talk of, so let's talk were, about... Sorry. Was that, John? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but so people were aligned to get this over the line. Yeah, yeah, in particular the management team. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the actual uh, acquisition itself. So the acquirer was a company called Elsevier, which is the largest medical publisher, one of the largest medical publishers in the world. Um, They came to you with an unsolicited offer? Like did they kind of, did they approach you sort of out of the blue or how did that actually take place? Yeah, very good question. So, in fact, we, we had um, a relationship with Elsevier going back a very, very long time. So I was talking about that we were making images and licensing. Elsevier were actually a, a big uh, licensor of our images. So we were on the front of a lot of their books and book chapters and, and you know, illustrations. So we had a relationship going back 
good 10 years. And we kept um, involved and we made a lot of connections in there and we had a very good relationship to them. Um, so much so in the last couple of years that they loved our technology. They were really loved what we were doing. And then I, 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 I think it just kind of clicked with them somewhere along the line that these guys have something to, that, that they're getting into places, into universities that, and we were taking a share of the market and they looked at it and, and, and said, well, that's, we want that. But also they looked at what they already had. And remember, these guys have got brilliant content, the best content in the world. They were looking at it, well, how can they use our technology and spruce up that content? So it was one plus one equals five. So it was just a natural progression. So it wasn't so much that we found them or they found us. They've always been in touch. We always had a good relationship and it was just a natural progression. So how did it go from a friendly relationship to we want to buy you? Like, I'd love to know, was it a dinner? Was it a lunch? Was it an email? Like, I think we were always flirting with the idea of, of them buying us. And then it just, uh, they said, well, yeah, let, let's, um, let me, you know, we we're dealing with one of their, their top guys. And uh, he said, you know, let me bring a team over to Dublin and uh, look at your offices, look at your technology and see what you have coming out and, you know, where you're going over the next year. Let's find out more about you. But do you recall the conversation? Was it, did, did, you, did you kind of flippantly say, you know, you guys should buy us? Or did they say, we'd like, I'd love to know who made the first move to the, the actual. I, I, I think um, it was us that said, yeah, you guys should buy us. <laughs> and they, they said, actually, you're probably right. Yeah, it, it was one of those conversations. It's probably a flipping conversation, but it was uh, something, like, something along those lines. Yeah. 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 And so that triggered their investigation. They flew a team over. Yeah. How was that experience? It, it was good. It was longer than we had anticipated because they're a big public company and they want to make sure that everything was aligned and there was nothing, there was no holes. Um, very strong management team. So we presented very well. Um, did a little bit of pre-due diligence, but at the time we thought that was actually the due diligence. Um, but uh, as a public company, as I said, wow, they, um, they don't leave any stone unturned. Yeah, yeah. So pre-diligence was a fairly superficial look at the Well, at the it business. wasn't. It was, it was, <laughs> uh, it was quite in-depth. Um, it, it really was. Uh, I thought it was the full due diligence, uh, as I said. But uh, no, it, it turned out that it was only, um, yeah, it was only a small part of the whole thing. So what did they see in you because i mean i understand that you had this technology and one plus one equals five i get that but part of me is thinking these guys are a big public company you know they could hire some artists and render some 3d images pretty quickly like did, did was it the library of images that you created was it the relationships with the bookstores and the professors like what was strategic for them I think it was a number of things. I think uh, it was definitely the technology it was, and also the, the models themselves. So we, as I was saying earlier on, we had 20,000 structures that were you know, medically accurate. To try to get structures medically accurate takes a long time. I mean, we built these things from scratch over about 10 years. So they were our crown jewels. They weren't easy to get. There's nobody else out there. And they're photorealistic. We put a lot of work into that rendering engine, which was also ours. We weren't using any games engine. We, we had propriety to te technology that allowed us to use those models. But also, I think 
the way we were developing and how fast we were developing and was starting to shoot. We were using the cloud to be able for a professor to do a virtual dissection and record that virtual dissection and then send it out to all his students or her students and they could see it themselves and then take a test on it and it would all come back. So we were very advanced and we were getting more advanced and every single time they, they looked at us, we were pushing the boundaries and we were in 50 universities and they come over and we were in 150 and then we were in 300 universities. It was just starting to take, and then the, the recurring revenue came in. So everything started to align at the same time. And it was also their time to say, hey, look, it's time for us to take, to have a look at it more serious. Did Elsevier report um, in the acquisition you know, revenue and EBITDA that you guys had at the time? Or is that public? Can you talk about sort of how? No, I, I can't. But uh, what, I, what I can say is that, it, you know, it, it really started to shoot in the year. Like, so we ended in November. They bought us in November. So our fiscal year is uh, the end of December. It was a good year. I don't know if they're going to be reporting on or how they, how they do things now, but it was a tremendous year. And I can say that 80% of our revenue was recurring. Um, every, sorry, every sale that we made um, was actually a, a recurring revenue. So um, we'd gone, we'd completely flipped everything from being a once-off sale to recurring revenue. So it was really starting to take off. Mm, got it, got it. And, and so what was your reaction to the offer when they first made the letter of intent, when they first produced the letter of intent? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I wasn't punching the air um, because I felt that it was, I thought, thought it was a fair offer. I thought it was what we were worth. Um, and I thought that maybe if we stay another couple of years, we could do a lot better. But the money was there on the table and it was an offer. And uh, yeah, I, it, was, it was something I just couldn't turn down. What did you think a company like that, yours, would have been worth? Like when you think about, you've obviously, you're obviously been around so the web for a while and SaaS companies, software as a service companies. I'm sure you'd seen some metrics. What, what were the sort of metrics that were floating around in your head from seeing other SaaS companies? Yeah, so it's, again, another great question. But so the value of a company is not just based on the recurring revenue but it's how quickly it's growing as well. So, I mean, if you've got recurring revenue, but you know, it's, you know, you're, you're going from 5 million to 6 million, so it's still, that's, that's great. But if you're, you're doubling your, your income in a year, that's, you're worth a lot more. So it's the speed of which you're growing as well, which mm -hmm. people don't usually take into account. So we were growing very, very quickly toward the end. Can't give you numbers or anything like that because it's it's just confidentiality. I, I just can't. But I think you get the idea that it was really taken off for us. And I, I think Elsevier got a great a great deal um, and did very well. But you know, I think it was fair. I think we got a good deal too. Yeah. So w what would you, in your mind, think a SaaS, a fast growth SaaS company would have been trading at around that time? It doesn't have to be in the medical space, but other SaaS companies you'd heard about. I, I think, uh, you, you know, anywhere between five and 20 times, uh, five top line uh, revenue. Yeah. So I, I think if you're, you know, that's if you're a unicorn, you're probably up to the, uh, the <coughs> 20 mark. I think, um, normally it would be somewhere around, if you're going fast, somewhere around seven, um, six or seven T times top line revenue. Sorry. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. When people hear that, they're going to like fall off their chair because it's such a huge multiple, right? I mean, for most business owners, they're going to trade at a, you know, relatively modest multiple of EBITDA or SDE, seller's discretionary earnings. So to hear multiples of revenue, it's a, it's a shocking number. Yeah. But, you know, first of all, again, I got to say that that's, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that that's what we did. No, no, that just, that's what you've seen other SaaS companies yeah. sort of trade at. And I think just from, from our all, from, from 3D for Medical's point of view was that we were certainly starting to see traction that was really starting to shoot. And it was, you know, it was pretty evident that next year was going to be tremendous as well. And, and, and really tremendous. Did you shop the deal to other acquirers? No, we didn't. We didn't. We, um, um, we, we, we just kept going the way it was and, and just, we just decided to see where this would go. Um, half thinking that if it didn't fall, if it didn't come through, we weren't really that pushed. We weren't that worried. So we weren't actively looking for a seller. As I said, towards the end, it was, it was more that they came to us and, and, um, although I won't say they came to us, it was kind of mutual, but mm-hmm. we weren't looking for anybody else. Yeah. I should add too that we were, you know, part of the part of the deal, which was really, really important to us, was first of all that Elsevier are very honourable; they were a great company to deal with. But also, they wanted to grow the company. They weren't going to. That was part of the deal that everybody was, nobody was going to be let go, and that they were going to expand it. And that was important as well, not just to me, but to the management team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did you ensure? Did you, did you take their word for it, or did you, you know, paper that commitment? Um, actually, we took their word for it. Mm-hmm. And so far, we're three months in, and they're expanding fast. What's life like now that you've sold your company? You know, it's um, it's not much different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't really have to tell you that it's, you know, it's uh, massively changed. Um, I, I think it's changed because I can really, I have the freedom to do what I want um, when I want to do it. But I've kind of always led that life anyway, just even being an entrepreneur. Um, they say that actually entrepreneurs are inherently lazy. Um, what they do is they try to find an easy way of doing stuff. And in doing, finding the easy way to do stuff, they work their butt off to find that easy way to do stuff. <laughs> So I, I, I think that would be probably me. Um, I've been had a couple of months off now. I'm, I'm really starting to get itchy feet again and go again. And uh, I am going again. So it's just, it's not really the money. It's just the buzz and having good people around you that you can discuss great ideas with. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does indeed. And the, th- and the, and the business, are, are you staying on for some sort of burnout or transition yeah, period at all? Or? There was no burnout at all. I, you know, we, I, you know, we, we, we made that was part of the, the deal and uh, they agreed. My management team was incredibly strong. I, was avail- I am available, I think, for another month as a, as a consultant if they need any help in anything. But so far, they've only needed me for a couple of hours just on the innovation side of things. And They've been really very honorable and have, have, have treated me very, very well. How did you think through how to share the proceeds with your team? Take me through that thought process of deciding yeah. how much to share, what, what are the conditions around sharing it? I, it was based on their, their salary. 
So we looked at their salary and uh, again, I can't get into it, but there was, um, you know, it's a balance that you want to give them something to show them that look, it was, you know, you've done a brilliant job, but also not enough that they can retire and not want to work for Elsevier anymore because, you know, Elsevier, you know, had to know about this too. So they didn't want the shareholders to give them enough that they could go off and retire. But it was mm-hmm. a big, nice, you know, for some of them, it was a nice kind of chunk of money that uh, they certainly would, would have made a difference in their life. What was the reaction that people um, gave you to receiving that money? Um, it, from different people. It's just like the way people are motivated by different things. Some people are motivated by titles. Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by just telling them what a great job they did. It was the same thing with uh, money that, uh, you know, you give um, some of the lower paid individuals, uh, you give them um, their bonus, which would be on, on the lower side, and they'd be crying. Um, it was just amazing. And then some of the bigger chunks of money that you give to some of the, the more well-paid uh, people, they're like, thanks. Um, so it was across the board. It, <laughs> it, was, it was really good. It was, it was interesting from a psychological point of view. Yeah. Yeah. How did you stick handle the dynamic with the senior team? Because on one day, you guys are partners, you're comrades, and you know, you're, you're friends, you're building the company together, you defer to them. And even in this interview, you clearly have had deferred to them and, and give credit where credit is due. And then all of a sudden, there's this kind of elephant in the room that, that they're not necessarily huge shareholders in the company. How did you get, how did you have that? How did you reconcile that with them in your own mind? These friends that yeah. brought you to the dance. Yeah. Um, it was difficult. It was difficult. It was, it was difficult for me because also I felt a little bit naked after not having them around, these great people around that I could run things by. But also, I think we were at a stage of where we could see what Elsevier could bring to the table. You know, we were, even though we were doing really, really well, Elsevier, a billion-dollar company, you know, they've got all this distribution, they have all this content, and it was exciting. I think that they bought into the idea, and and Elsevier made it a prerequisite that a number of, uh, well, all the management team and a number of other people um, renewed their contracts, you know, and uh, sorry, gave them offers that were uh, very enticing uh, packages um, going forward. Um, That's so, great. you know, there was, they'd already bought into the idea that elsewhere we're going to take this to another level and it wasn't going to go south. Was there resentment that you got to ride off at the sunset and, and they were well, left I, holding I, the... I, I really didn't see that. I, I had a very, very good relationship and still do with most of the people in there. So I, I really didn't see, see that. I, look, the money is a funny thing. You know, there's always going to be people um, that are going to go, well, why, why should he do it? And why? But I think everybody knew that, you know, that I've been there for a long time. I'd, I'd worked really hard to get it to that level. So I, I don't think anybody was, you know, gave me any sort of bad vibes or anything like that. Not that yeah, I- yeah. Did you choose to reward yourself at all? Did you buy yourself a, a treat, a trophy? 
I'm still looking for that, John. I'm still, I'm still thinking about that. It's, it's actually three months today that, uh, we, uh, that, I, I, that we sold the, the company. So, Dude, um, it's about time to get off the hop, man. <laughs> get out so, your checkbook. Let me help you spend it. <laughs> What's on your list? Um, you see, I, look, I, it sounds a bit pathetic, but I really have everything. You know, I, I have it all. So... I'm just interested in business and I like, you know, I've got some great ideas and I want to go back in there. That's, that's my trip. Love it. Love it. What's, what's next for you? Where uh, you know, have you got anything you want to talk about that uh, that's next or are you keeping it close to your vest? Well, no, it's, it's, um, you know, my background is in 3d. I'm fascinated by it. I, I think there's just amazing things that are, that are coming down the line. Um, most people are talking about glasses and, you know, all these wearables. I'm talking about being able to see things that actually aren't there in your room, um, but something that's tracking your eyes is able to project it. So we're doing some experiments on that that is really cool. And I think that that could bring, go to another level. So we'll see where that goes. That's awesome. That's awesome. If, if people want to reach out, are, do you, are you a Twitter guy and LinkedIn guy? What's the best way to reach LinkedIn out? LinkedIn is the best. I'm John F. Moore on LinkedIn. If you look up John F. Moore, and then 3D for medical beside you probably get me right away. Um, also have a, a blog. It's called the, the rebel entrepreneur series.com. Um, it's also available on most of the uh, social media platforms. Fantastic. It's called the rebel entrepreneur series series. Excellent. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I am so grateful for you sharing the time today, John. It has been great to, uh, to hear the story. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.